I mean, I could I could quite happily sit on the fence with this one, but I'm not. I'm going to go all in and 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 say uh, I think it's more income more important to have the right. Welcome to the Exponential Investor Podcast. Want to be a better, smarter, more clued up investor? Well, you've come to the right place. We cover the breakthrough investment ideas you don't hear about in the mainstream to keep you on top of the mega trends and opportunities reshaping our world. Hello and welcome to the Exponential Investor Podcast. I'm Kit Winder and I'm joined as always by Sam Volkering. Sam, how are you doing? Morning, Kit. Good to be with you again. Uh, now, Sam, I'm leading this podcast off because I've got a question for you. I would love to know what you think is more important for an, an investor. Is it stock selection or is it asset allocation? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you mean allocation to industry? Yeah, to industry or to sort of what asset it is. So is it, you know, whether you have stocks or bonds or is it, you know, which exact stock you have, which exact bond you have, whether you have, you know, gold or this specific gold miner? Is it picking the right company within a sector or is it picking the right sector or the right asset? Um, I mean, I could I could quite happily sit on the fence with this one, but I'm not. I'm going to go all in and, and, and say uh, I think it's more income, more important to have the right stock rather than the right asset or asset class or industry or theme. Um, for me, I think, we well, see, some, co- some companies, some stocks can act like other assets. They're, they're, you can get stability, you, well, relative stability. You can get income. Um, you know, there's, there, there, are, there are bond-like companies that are, are traded as stocks, if, if that's, that's sort of what you're looking for. There are... I mean, there's obvious risks that come with it, but there are savings account-like stocks out there that that do come with an element of blue chipness about them, as much as we don't really love that phrase anymore, um, and that and that and pay you an income. So, you know, I think I think if you get the right company, regardless of the industry, uh, that's always preferable in my eyes than having it having the right kind of asset. I mean, ultimately, that that does mean that stocks are the right kind of asset too, right? Um, so therefore, in, in, in saying that stocks are more important, I am also therefore saying that the asset is also more important because I'm also saying that stocks are more important. So you see, it's this, it's this Mobius uh, circle, really. It just comes around and keeps swinging back on itself. But that's I think that's my take on it. Okay, well, I'm going to follow it up with a challenge then uh, to test that thesis. Do you think over the last 10 or 12 years, it would have been possible to find a single uh, oil and gas company or banking stock uh, or maybe a sort of, you know, dull construction company that outperformed the NASDAQ? Uh, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure, without doubt. I mean, the NASDAQ's done very well. But what's uh, what's what, what, what time horizon are we talking about here? 10 years. Uh, so what's the NASDAQ done over the last 10 years? Four, five times? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, there are single stocks that have outperformed the NASDAQ. I suppose I think the what I'm, what I'm getting at is that the challenge uh, for a value investor has been extraordinary in the last 10 years to even keep pace with the rest of the market and that you know, you could sort of be in a group of 100 growth stocks and you do better than any, you know, any of the best value investors in the world have all un- underperformed the simple S&P 500 or the NASDAQ. And in that sense, I guess, maybe factor or, or sort of that in asset allocation in those terms 
could be considered superior or do you think you could still within that that by being an excellent stock picker you could outperform the index I, look i still i still think everyone can outperform the index i think the the thing is is that it depends on what part of the market that you're that you're fishing in really i mean if you're fishing you know for companies that are worth more than you know two two three hundred billion you're not really going to outperform because that you know most of those big companies form um you know most of the indexes so so the performance of those companies you now if you if, if, if all you want to ever do is go and buy apple and and, and google and amazon um then you're probably, to be honest, better off with something like an index. Because if you're going to, again, if, you, if you're going to diversify a portfolio into a number of stocks, say you're going to diversify into like 10 to 15 stocks, and they're all big, massive, mega cap stocks, what you are effectively buying there is the index. Um, and so if you're going to make riskier calls and maybe say pick one, Okay, well then maybe you can you can outperform it. So it depends. There's a number of factors that come into this, right? It depends on what size companies and what size stocks you're picking at what stage, you know, uh, are they at, are they, are they, uh, you know, early stage growth company? Are they sort of past, are they a developmental company that's, you know, developing a service or a technology or a platform or something that's sort of gone past the theoretical and the, the development stage and is now looking, you know, at that point of commercialization and bringing in revenues and moving towards profitability. Are they a profitable company that has traditional earnings, uh, that they pay out its dividend or reinvest back into the company. Are they in that kind of growth phase? And, you know, what, what's their market cap? Is it, you know, can a 50 million quid company go to 500 million? Can a 500 million quid company go to 5 billion? Can a 5 billion one go to 50 billion? You know, you've got to ask yourself these kinds of questions, like what's the market size that they can tap into? So there is certainly an element of, I think absolutely you can you can beat the market by performing, uh, you know, by single stock selection and, and multiple stock selection, typically in the sort of mid to smaller cap regions. Um, but at the same time, that does require a lot of work. And a lot of people don't have a lot of work and a lot of time to put towards it. I mean, that's what that's what we do. That's our job. And that's why people come to listen to us and subscribe to our work. Some people don't want to do that. Some people just want it easy. And some people just want, you know, the index or they want a thematic ETF which is completely understandable. And you can do very well out of those. But it's a balance of is very well to, to an investor 20, 30% per year, which by the way, is traditionally ridiculous returns. Like if you're getting 20, 30% per year on your portfolio, that is smashing it. Um, you know, you can get single stocks that'll do 100, 200, 300% more, but you'll also probably get some if you're being a stock picker that lose. So what you want to ultimately achieve is if you're going to get into single stock selection like this, right, um, you've got to understand that you are going to have losses. And so in doing that, you really, while you want to be picking stocks that are doing a thousand percent, you know, and they're out there and there are ones that, you know, we've, you and I have both seen um, that have done that. But at the same time, you're not aiming for an overall portfolio return of a thousand percent because that is I'm not sure that's ever happened, really, unless someone's just gone all in on one stock in their portfolio. But diversified portfolios are typically not going to do a thousand percent. If you can get double digits in sort of the 30, 40, 50 percent range, you are absolutely killing it. Um, and that's so I think people need to temper expectations around 
how they choose single stocks and where they where they pick them, um, and at the same time, you know, have have some relative perspective on performance as well. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Warren Buffett, who's who's often thought of as one of the greatest investors of of the last few decades at least, he's compounded at, at something like nineteen percent over the last fifty or sixty years. So he's you're a stock thirty forty. He's a He's a stock picker. He's a, he's an active stock picker. Like people are like, oh, he's a value investor. I'm like, nah, he's a stock picker. Uh, I would say that I'm not sure about that. I'm just, I think he's a factor investor. To an he extent, buys, he, buys, he invests in high quality value stocks. Yeah, and he also is he's, he's also become a negotiator. So now what he invests in is, you know, special deals that only he can offer just after the financial crisis and sort of. He has a capital base that can bail out companies at very favorable terms. So that's sort of what's going on now. But going back to the original question, Sam, uh, about uh, individual stocks or individual uh, assets versus the broader class, do you think that there's a single attractively priced bond in the world right now? Um, I don't know. You're probably more in tune with that than than I am. I, I'll be I'll be frank with you. I I really don't pay much attention to the bond market. <laughs> for a start i find bonds a unbelievably boring and b unbelievably complex and uh and i haven't given them great amount of attention to be honest with you so i don't know you tell me yeah i suppose while uh the thought is with inflation coming uh and the bond market having also had a 40-year bull market whether it's in the same place as stocks where there's a lot of overvaluation and whether there's any value to be found but um Yes, maybe the most attractively priced ones are the ones that they're inflation linked. That would have been my get out answer. Um, but like you, I haven't delved into the depths. It's more about the uh, the yields on the government bonds that I think we find very interesting because of the way that they dictate the stock market. Uh, and with, I think, the US uh, government 10-year bond that has a yield that is now approaching 2%, I think for the first time since sort of the middle of 2019, uh, and that's a number that's always worth watching because the US 10 year is sort of, you know, one of those key barometers that everyone looks at. So I encourage people to look at that one, if nothing else. Uh, and that has had a, a pretty spectacular run, the yield of late, which means people are selling uh, American government bonds in fear mm. of inflation. Uh, so I suppose those are the sort of, without looking at the individual bonds, those are the things that I would be looking at. Um, Do you know what I'd be really interested to find out is that uh, of, our, of, of whoever's listening today or, or watching us, I'd like to know if anyone is actually invested in bonds ever. Oh, I'm certain that a lot would have. That would be my guess because I think... I, I, I think the opposite. I think that most of the people that are listening to us right now have never invested in bonds. Perhaps not uh, by themselves, but if you invest in any sort of managed fund, any 60-40 portfolio, any uh, pension fund. Uh, so we, you know, I will be investing in, in bonds through my pension, which I don't manage myself. And I'm sure if you don't manage your own pension, you will be too. So it's, they're sort of one of those unavoidable things. And I think there's a guy as well called Russell Napier, a str strategist and analyst. And one of the things he's talking about is that the bond market is so overvalued, um, but the sort of the debt that needs to be raised to keep this system going uh, with inflation on the horizon is so great. And that with inflation, everyone's going to be fleeing away from bonds very naturally as they've started to do, which is why that sort of US 10-year yield is rising the same in the UK, the same in Europe. 
Um, but one thing he's saying is that governments are going to start forcing people to invest in bonds. And that that form of what he calls financial repression, because if, you know, if the market sells government bonds, the yield spikes, the stock market crashes, that's sort of transmission mechanism that can happen. And he says that, you know, to keep the system going and to keep being able to issue debt, governments will have to force us to buy it. So even if they haven't, they may well be doing so soon against their will. It's it's interesting you bring up that the, the idea of forcing investors into something like bonds as a form of financial repression, because wasn't it just recently as well that the government said that they were looking at mandating investment in ESG funds uh, in people's pensions so that people had to invest in ESG funds, um, which would also indicate a form of financial repression, no? Uh, yes, especially when you consider the quality of some of the ESG funds. And I think that's something we, we would talk about and something we're going to be talking about in the months to come. But putting ESG next to a fund label or putting green next to a fund label has very little things. In fact, I read, you know, there are tens of trillions of dollars invested in sustainable ESG funds worldwide. There must be hundreds of funds that have been launched just in America uh, in recent years. But of those, only 12 have got no fossil fuel exposure at all. <laughs> only 12 and that shows that you sort of say ah oh, we're sustainable and one of the great lines is we include esg criteria in our analysis but including it doesn't mean obeying it you can include it and then reject it and just carry on investing in coal power companies and oil and gas that that, that does raise an interesting point and, and this is maybe a bigger conversation about funds right is and so this kind of comes back as well to what we were saying about bonds is that i i think that most people have probably never invested in bonds but you're right they have indirect exposure possibly through some funds that they've been invested in and i would hazard a guess to say that the same thing with people that have probably invested in esg funds have invested thinking that they're ESG, but don't actually know the indirect exposure they've got to things that maybe aren't ESG. And it brings into question, I think, again, this whole aspect of, of people taking greater um, awareness and uh, attention to how they're invested and what they're invested in, because I think that a lot of people are probably invested in funds and they don't really know what they're actually investing in. So to give you a, a brief example of, of, of what I'm talking about, um, a little while ago, um, my dad sent me something. So he, he lives in Australia and he's got a self-managed, uh, he had a, at the time self-managed um, pension. And uh, he sent me this thing that his financial advisors at the time had been pushing to him, which was this US property um, hybrid uh, coupon note, friggin' ridiculously complex thing that effectively invested in New York property and was taking on debt to buy more. And Anyway, I, I wrote back to him. I said, you know what? This is the biggest pile of dog shit I've ever seen in my life. It is complex. These people are just feeding themselves with the fees. You don't really know what you're invested in and you don't really know if you're even able to get out if it all goes belly up. And he eventually didn't. Well, he, he didn't invest in it, but he was being pushed pretty hard by his advisors into it. Ultimately, that fund uh, is now in the process of collapsing and those financial advisors that he was with and isn't because we told him to leave them are in administration. But this, this calls into question, you know, the entire funds management industry and, and who are operating these funds, what you're invested in, how they function. Do you understand what they do? Do you understand how they operate? Do you understand what they're invested in, how the fee structures work, what the debt offering is, who gets the commissions from these fees and funds. And I think it brings back to the point, which is why probably a lot of people do, come to us and look at the stuff and the work that we do 
is that it's important to know that if you're going to be putting your money into a fund, that you know all those things. And a lot of the time people are getting ripped off from that entire industry. And the best approach to take is smart, individual, self-managed investments. Choose your own stocks, do the research, do the legwork, understand what's on offer. Um, because you can do it in the market now easier than you ever could before. And there's an increasing um, lack of need for some of these funds and some of these advisors that effectively scratch each other's backs. Um, so that whole industry, I think, is in the midst of a massive overhaul. Or if it isn't, it's it's about to get overhauled in a big way. Um, and I think that, funnily enough, there's a lot of stock opportunities that come off the back of that entire industry getting upended as well. So I've probably gone on a massive diversion of, of where we originally came from or started from with all this. But like I say, anyone watching, if you're invested in a fund and you don't really know what it is or what it's doing, you should bloody well find out. Um, and and think and see if it's actually doing what it's supposed to be. Yeah, well, let, let's end there, Sam, and just reiterate the point that investing blindly in anything is is rarely a good idea, and uh, following advice without understanding it uh, is also probably not a very good idea. So, just encouraging people to take an interest in their investments, take an interest in their companies, their funds. It's all interesting, and you know there are brilliant managers and brilliant funds that we look at out there um, that are good. So it's not all terrible, but. There's a lot out there that you have to be careful of and just being interested and engaged is really all it takes to avoid the, the worst pitfalls. Um, so Sam, as always, a pleasure talking to you on these podcasts. Hope everyone who's listened has enjoyed it. And we'll be back again next week with another installment of the Exponential Investor podcast. <laughs>